Good morning. Hey, you chose to worship with us, thinking of all of you at 95th, everybody at Bolingbrook, Wheaton folks, Hobson folks. Glad you're here. Praying that you are blessed by learning about God, but more importantly, experiencing his reality and his love for you. You know, I had a professor back in college who became a mentor in my life and really a friend, and he was the author of many biographies, including this one. This was, maybe you could argue, a little bit of a risk. It was about a feisty New York woman, Jewish, atheistic, actually the American Communist Club, and uh, she was a single mom of two little boys, and He found her story endlessly fascinating, and so he wrote her biography. Apparently, many others found it interesting, too, because they made a movie of it. Some of you may recall the movie called Shadowlands. It had Anthony Hopkins and Deborah Winger as the stars of it. But it was the story of this woman, Joy Davidman. Here's actually a picture of Joy. Back in the 1950s, Joy Davidman and her developing relationship with C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is the Oxford scholar uh, over in England, this author who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and so many great Christian books. Well, if you were to have asked Joy Davidman way back, you know, and when she was, uh, you know, in her 30s back in the 1950s, do you know C.S. Lewis? I think she would have said, well, I know about him. I've, I've, read, I've read the newspaper, and he's a celebrity. In fact, let's put the word celebrity. C.S. Lewis was, to Joy Davidman, originally just a celebrity. She wasn't interested in him because she was an atheist, and he was a Bible-thumping Christian, but, but he was popular. Uh, he was a radio personality at a talk a radio uh, job, and he wrote so much, and so, of course, she knew of him. But that changed when some friends gave her books of his. At first, she was like, why are you giving me C.S. Lewis books? I'm an atheist. And they were like, well, try him out. And so she did, and to her amazement, she loved it. She found his, his rational approach to defending his belief intriguing. And she just started devouring everything Lewis wrote. And his writings actually were pivotal in her abandoning her atheism and coming not only to believe in God, but placing faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you were to ask her then, hey, do you know C.S. Lewis? She would have said, well, yeah, I mean, he's my favorite author. Let's put the word author here. He's His writings, his heart expressed in his words have marked my life. Yes, in this way, I know him. Well, uh, that progressed one day when she was talking to some friends uh, about Lewis and one of his books and an argument that he was making, and she had a question about what Lewis meant. And the friend says, well, why don't you ask him? And she's like, what do you mean, ask him? Write a letter. You know, letters do go over the Atlantic Ocean there, and, and he may respond. And she's like, he's got millions of readers and fans. There's no way he'd have the time to read my letter, let alone respond to my question. And they said, you got nothing to lose. She said, you know, they got a good point. I'm going to try it. 
And so she pulled out a piece of paper and she wrote to this professor on the other side of the world. And to her amazement, Lewis wrote back. And these two started engaging in robust theological discussion via letter. Turns out Joy Davidman was brilliant. And Lewis found an intellectual peer in this woman. And he loved talking about theology, talking about his books. You know, she had these little boys right around the time that he was writing the Chronicles of Narnia for the first time. And he loved to hear of how the boys were feeling and responding to his books. And so they became... Pen pals, let's put that down. Uh, got a stack of letters here just to remind us of this stage of their relationship. If you would have asked Joy Davidman, hey, do you know C.S. Lewis? She would have said, well, a matter of fact, I do. He and I are friends. I mean, I've never met him in face-to-face, but we correspond regularly via our letters. And so, yes, I'd say I know him. Well, that relationship changed even further I think she started to fall in love with him, even during the letter-writing phase. But she had opportunity to go on vacation. Someone was going to be watching her two boys. Where do you think she chose to go on vacation? How about England? I hear it's nice this time of year. And so she went to England and surprised C.S. Lewis. He did not know of her. She said, hey, I just happened to be on vacation. I happened to be in Oxford. Might you be interested in doing lunch? And he said, I'd love to. And so they had lunch together, and C.S. Lewis was a uh, guy in his 50s at that time, lifelong bachelor. But he took this younger uh, woman on a tour of the historic, beautiful Oxford University campus. And as they walked and talked and laughed, they uh, were taking the relationship to another level. And they did many more dates, and eventually he proposed, "I, I have a a wedding ring here to signify that further stage. And if you were to ask Joy Davidman after she married him, do you know C.S. Lewis? She would say, yeah, he's my husband, for crying out loud. He's the love of my life. He's my daily companion. We share the journey God has given us. Isn't that interesting? That simple question. Do you know him? It could mean so many different things. I want to use that same continuum for you. I want to ask you, do you know God? How would you answer that? You might, as I ask it, say, well, honestly, I would say, well, I know of him. I mean, he's, he's a celebrity, for crying out loud. You know, he's the creator of the world. I'm at church. You know, people talk about him. Is that what you mean? Do I know him? Uh, others would say, oh, I know him more than know of him. He's my favorite author. I read his book. I've read his book. Not all of it, but I've read much of his Bible, the, his book. I've heard preachers speak on his book, and his truth revealed in his book has impacted my life. I know something of what he's like through what I've read and learned. So I'd like to say, yeah, I know him. Others would say, no, it's more than that for me. I'd call God my friend. In fact, God and I correspond, communicate regularly. He speaks to me through the Bible. I realize when I read the Bible, it's not just to a vast sea of humanity. He speaks to me personally through his book. And I speak to him through prayer. And I feel like I can call him a friend because we regularly correspond. Others would go even further. You want to know if I know God? He's he's the love of my life. 
He's everything to me. He is my daily companion, my first thought in the morning, my last thought at night. He is my life. Interesting. Friends, it's this topic that I want to study with you. The the knowledge of God. That's what today's message is called, the knowledge of God. What does it mean to know God? As it turns out, this is an extremely important biblical question. And Hosea the prophet is going to help us. We're in our fourth week in this series on the prophet Hosea. And what we, we find is that we have been progressing through his life. His life and his message were kind of joined together. Hosea's life was tragic. He married this woman, Gomer, who he adored, but she uh, cheated on him, ran off with other lovers. And God said, it hurts, doesn't it, Hosea? Now you know how I feel because my people, Israel, have chased after other lovers and abandoned devotion to me. And Hosea's broken marriage and his words proclaimed and revealed the heart of God. Now, we have uh, been looking at his life. Now, as we get further into the book of Hosea, we're going to turn more to his words, his prophetic statements as God gave him words to share. And we turn now to Hosea 6, verse 1. We're going to study together verses 1 through 3 of Hosea 6. And my prayer is, you will, if you write in your Bible, this section of Scripture will have more circles and underlines and stars because it's beautiful. You ready? It says in Hosea 6.1, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he'll heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Friends, I, w- I want to start by highlighting come, Let us return to the Lord. Hosea is commanding the people to action. He's saying, people of Israel, there's something you got to do now. You return to the Lord. This is a shift. Earlier in the book, it's not been so much the people being called to action, but God revealing his heart. In fact, our first three messages are all about God revealing his heart. Week one was the jealousy of God. God admitting, when you people cheat on me, When you chase after other lovers, when I'm not your first love, it hurts. I get jealous. We too was the woo of God. A little glimpse into God's heart where he's saying, you should know this, I'm after you. I am seeking to win your affection, to woo you, to allure you back to myself. Last week, week three, was the grace of God. This is where God says, I need you to know what I've done. I've paid the ultimate price to make relationship with you possible. This was illustrated by Hosea actually paying monetarily to free his wayward wife out of slavery. She had messed up her life so bad. He paid the price to buy her out of slavery to bring her back to himself. And we learned that's what Jesus did for us. He paid the ultimate price on the cross. He shed his blood, paving a way for us to know God. And with all this that God feels and has done, it now turns to us. Will you return to him? And the cry of the prophet Hosea is return to God. And I wonder if you are doing that. For some the need is quite literally to return. You once were really close to God in an earlier stage of life, but the decades have 
torn that down and you find yourself distant and in need of a return. Others would say, I don't know what you're talking about, friendship with God, I've never had that. You need to start that friendship with God. Others would say, God and I are fairly close, but deep down, I know we could be closer yet. And in all cases, God is calling us to pursue a closer relationship with him. Return to me. Now, what about this? Let's highlight these four lines. He's torn us to pieces? What? But he'll heal us. He's injured us? Torn us to pieces? Injured us? What's going on here? Well, uh, this provides a great opportunity for me to summarize two chapters that we just skipped. Last week we were in Hosea 3. We skipped over Hosea 4 and 5. If you study those chapters, and I encourage you to do so, you will find that they describe God announcing hardship, pain coming to his people. God says, hey, listen, I'm going to send suffering your way. You say, why would the Lord do that? That sounds awful. Here's why. God is seeing that his people are leaving him. They're trying to build a life without him. And God is intentionally frustrating that effort. God says, oh, you're going to find delight without me? Yeah, think again. You're going to find misery, and I'll make sure of it. I will make sure that all of your pursuits are frustrated. I want you empty. And you say, why? God's not being mean. God is desiring them to realize, to wake up and to realize their need to come home to him. By being uh, frustrated in their pursuit of a life without God, maybe they will realize that they need him. God's heart is not to hurt. God's heart is to heal. We see that here. He's saying, listen, people, if you'll only return to me, I'll, I'll heal all these these torn pieces. If, if you'll just return to me, I will bind up your injuries. God's heart is to use suffering to draw people to himself. And so you should know that if you've got, well, if you've got, we've all got suffering in our lives, don't we? We've got hardship to some degree. And I'm not saying that God sends all suffering into our lives. I don't believe that. Some of it he does. Others of it comes just by way of living in a broken, messed up world. But I know this, all suffering, no matter how it comes, God desires to use it to propel us into his arms. Friends, lean into your your hardship and beg God, Lord, use this ache to draw me closer to you, to remind me of my need for you. And suffering will serve you well in that way. Well, there's uh, verse 1. Let's transition now to verse 2. This is good stuff. Ready? Verse 2 says, After two days, he, God, will revive us. The third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. All right. When we see these words, uh, revive and restore, you should know the literal meaning here is resurrection. (laughs) That God will promise here a resurrection. In other words, He's saying, people, you may not be physically dead, but you are spiritually dead. And the Lord is promising through Isaiah, he said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm the specialist in resurrections. God is, did you know that? That's like his expertise. The Lord's like, you know what I do really well? I make dead things come alive. And this is encouraging to all of us who feel spiritually dead. You know, if you look at your spiritual life and you're just like, you know what, forget it. 
There's no hope for me. It's a mess. Got good news. No matter how bad, how dead it is, know this. God specializes in your type. He brings dead things to life again. And this two or three days, this is a reference to it being near. God's saying, if you'll return to me, I'm telling you, soon and very soon, I can bring new life once again. I wonder, when I say God is an expert in resurrections, and this promise of a resurrection on the third day, does that make you think of somebody? You know, the greatest of God's resurrections is Jesus Christ on the third day. And though Hosea had no idea, the Lord speaking through Hosea was throwing out just a little taste of his greatest resurrection that was to come. And that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of Christ's resurrection, we are promised a resurrection as well. So to the spiritually dead among us, good news. God brings resurrections. And you say, well, what is it like to come alive to God? Well, look at this uh, last phrase here. Let's highlight this. That we may live in his presence. Isn't that an amazing statement? You know what God's vision for you is? That you would live in his presence. Maybe you've tasted his presence once or twice. You know, you've had a moment where you realized, wow, God is here. I can feel him. I sense him. I can sense his love, maybe. And you're like, oh, I've had a few moments where I've tasted it. Well, that's nice, but that's not what this is talking about. We're talking about living in his presence, where every day, 24-7, you have this perpetual awareness of God's reality and proximity in your life. Where in the morning, you're like, hey, good morning, Lord. Let's do this day together. Lead me, guide me, empower me, love me. And each day you find yourself enjoying it because your constant companion is the Lord. Living in his presence is his vision for us. All right, verse 3. Verse 3 continues. Oh man, this is a really good one. You ready? Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. And he will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. All right. I want to highlight this first line. Let us acknowledge the Lord. I normally love the NIV. The NIV is the New International Version. That's the version, the translation of the Bible that we have in our seatbacks and that I preach from. But I don't like their translation of this word, acknowledge. Most translations translate the Hebrew word, know. Let us know the Lord. Both are fair. I think know is much better. The problem I have with acknowledge is it could sound like a token thing. You know, like when I come home from work someday, my son will be on a video game, and my wife will say, Jake, your dad is home. Jake, acknowledge your father. And, and Jake will say, hi, dad. Hi, Jake. Is that all God's looking for is for us to say, oh, yeah, uh, hi, God. You know, no, it's more than just mere acknowledgement. It really means to know him. In fact, confession here, in my Bible, I have got a little slash through the AC and through the L-E-D-G-E. 
to highlight the word know, because I think that conveys the original better. Let us know the Lord. And that brings us back to our question we started with. What does it mean to know the Lord? Remember, I asked, do you know God? Uh, Do you mean, do I know of him? Because, yeah, I know, no. When we're seeking to understand the biblical understanding of know, it is not just knowing of him. Friends, uh, knowledge to the Hebrew was deep knowledge. In fact, in seminary, I had Hebraic epistemology. And that's, um, throw that around with friends and family. Yeah, we, we learned about Hebraic epistemology at church today. How about your church? Yeah, but you know. What does that mean? Epistemology is the science or the pursuit of knowing something, or the theory of knowledge. And Hebraic means how the Hebrew understood knowledge. And yes, to a Hebrew, to know something meant to experience it. Head knowledge about something wasn't enough. You had to encounter that thing to say, I know it. Like, if if you were to say, I know snow skiing, because I've read three books about snow skiing, the Hebrew would say, don't bother, you don't know snow skiing until you put on the skis and get on the mountain and take off and feel the wind. Then you know it. And similarly, when we're challenged to know God, this is not knowing about him. The Hebrews went so far with their understanding of knowledge and what it meant that when it came to describing sexual intimacy, you know, we, we have to, everybody, culture has to figure out words to describe that. We'll say, you know, I, I slept with or I made love to. The Hebrews used the phrase, I knew her. In fact, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says, in the King James Version, it says, and Adam knew his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. I mean, that just shows you that knowledge meant connection, relational connection at the deepest of levels. And sure enough, in the book of Hosea, do you know, 15 times in this one book, we are challenged to know God. Know him. Do you know him at the deepest of levels? Friends, we are expected to have an experiential knowledge of God. Though he's invisible, I know that. And though he's inaudible, you can't hear him audibly. God is knowable. The great promise of the Christian faith is that Jesus has died to make reconnection with God possible. And yes, we can know God. Look at this next phrase. It's going to take pressing on in that goal. Look at that. Let us press on to ignite. Again, I I put in a through the AC and the LEDG. Let us press on to know him. Press on means to pursue, to take active steps in pursuit of a goal. Do you remember what our uh, first of our four priorities are? Pursue him daily. Our four priorities. We've always said, and we'll continue to say here at the Compass Church, that if you really want to grow spiritually, you've got to do four things. You've got to pursue, connect, serve, reach. Pursue, connect, serve, reach. And pursue is pursue them every day in Bible study and prayer. Set aside a little bit of time to connect with God in Bible reading, study, and prayer. And that is how you press on to know him. And so, friends, I just want to ask you, are you, is there tangible evidence of your pursuit of building a friendship with God. You may say, well, it's a little bit, not enough. Well, let's all rise up. This is the glorious 
opportunity of humanity. No greater privilege exists than to know in personal friendship and experience the creator and king of the universe. And so Hosea says, come on, people. Press into that goal every day. And if you do, as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. Oh, I love this phrase. In fact, you may just want to memorize this. As surely as the sun rises, God will appear to you. To appear means to manifest himself. Now, I've never had God visibly appear. That has happened a few times in various ways in the biblical era. But most of the time then, as well as now, God manifests himself to our inner eyes of faith. He makes people consciously aware. Oh my, through this experience, through that encounter with that person, in this quiet moment, God, I know you're here. Not only are you here, you're speaking to me. You're loving on me. I'm enjoying your self-revelation, your manifestation, your appearance. And will that happen? Yes. What I love about this verse is it's promising. As surely as the sun rises, to those, not to everybody, but to those who press on to know him, as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. Did you worry about the sun rising this morning? Oh, I sure hope the sun comes up tomorrow. No, we don't worry about that. We know that will happen. Well, with that same confidence, you can know God reveals himself to those who seek him. In fact, I'm reminded of Jeremiah 29, 13, one of my favorite verses. God promised, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. If you pursue me, you seek me with all your heart, you'll seek me and find me. Hebrews 11.6 says, God rewards all who earnestly seek him. Friends, if you earnestly seek God, you will find him. There, there should be an anticipation that develops, not a pessimism. If you're a, a Christian pessimist, oh, the Lord will never show up. That's not biblical. We should be Christian optimists where When I walk into my study each morning for my Pursue Him daily time, I have this buzzing anticipation. It's like, ooh, this is going to be good. As surely as the sun rose this morning, he's about to appear in my life right now. I don't know how. I don't know if it's something I read in the Bible where I'll realize God's speaking to me. I don't know if in prayer the Holy Spirit will just give me a thought of great encouragement. But I know he's going to show up. He does every day. Here we go. That's the exciting anticipation, the confidence that should mark the Christ follower pursuing, pressing on to know him. Surely as the sun rises, my God will appear. All right. And when he appears and you experience him, what is that like? Well, here's what it's like. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. When he comes to you, when he appears to you, what is it like? Well, it's like rain. Now, we normally don't like rain. You know, we're like, oh, it's a rainy day. You got to get back into the ancient agricultural environment the Bible was originally written in. Rain was awesome. In fact, they couldn't wait for the winter rains and the spring rains. There were two rainy seasons in Israel, still are today. 
and two dry seasons. And those dry seasons were marked by the fields being dead and no crops to eat. It was a hard time. But when the winter or autumn rain came, and when the uh, spring raid came, they both followed long seasons of drought. And man, the people rejoiced in those rains. Have you ever seen pictures of farmers standing in the rain, just bursting with a smile on their face? That's you experiencing God. When he comes to you, when he appears to you, you bask in the shower of his love. You drink deep his friendship. It satisfies your thirsty soul. In fact, I'll use that word satisfaction as, what is this saying that this friendship with God will result in? It will result in satisfaction. Like the thirsty ground drinking the rain, so a thirsty soul drinks up the presence of God, and it satisfies like nothing else will. I'll just warn you. You think you're satisfied with more stuff? Yeah, try that. Doesn't work. You think your soul's satisfied with more wild experiences? Try that. No, God made the human soul to be satisfied in him and in him alone. And so you want your soul to say, yes, this is what I was made for. Know this, it is in knowing God. But satisfaction isn't the only thing this rain alludes to. I would add satisfaction and transformation. Not only does the rain satisfy our thirst, it transforms our lives. Uh, The dry ground, the earth that's dead, when the rain falls, it transforms into green, vibrant life. We see this in uh, our lawns sometimes, don't we? You know, in the dog days of August when there's been no rain and our grass just looks terrible, one torrential downpour, and it, like in hours, it just transforms into vibrant green life. God says, try me. When you know me, you will change. There will be a beauty to your being that people will notice and say, what's up with you? It's the change knowing God brings. You know, that change knowing God brings, is evident in the life of Joy Davidman. Can I go full circle and come back to uh, this wife of C.S. Lewis? In her biography, I want to back up, before she ever knew C.S. Lewis face-to-face, back when she was reading his books, she had her conversion to Christianity. And the night of her conversion to Christianity is described in her own words. And I just want to share it with you. It, It was... C.S. Lewis's books that set her up to be converted, but it was hardship that pushed her over the edge. God used hardship in her life. And, and her hardship was her crumbling marriage. Her first marriage was a wreck. Here she was, a middle-aged woman, finding out that her husband was cheating on her. And not only was he cheating on her, She found out that he was recklessly spending their money and had bankrupted their family. And she was panicked, not knowing if she was going to have funds to feed her own little boys. And then on this one tragic night, she's in her apartment in New York. Her boys are to bed and the phone rings and it's her wandering husband who's in a mental breakdown announcing, I'm going to kill myself. Just wanted you to know. Goodbye. 
And she's panicked. She's calling the police. They're asking, where is he? She's like, I don't know. She was helpless. There was nothing she could do. This woman who prided herself in being in control lost all control. And she writes of her experience in her apartment that night. She said, for the first time, my pride was forced to admit that I was not, after all, the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. It's a reference to an author that she prized and liked to view herself as the master of her fate and the captain of her soul. She realized that night, it's not true. In that moment, all my defenses, that is, the walls of arrogance, self-confidence, self-love, behind which I hid from God, those walls came down and God came in. And God came in. That's the title of this book, And God Came In. Those are the four words she chose to describe her moment of transformation in Christ. I continue to read her words. She said, God was with me in that room directly present to my consciousness. He was so real that all my previous life was in comparison like a mere shadow. And I was more alive than I had ever been before. I suddenly knew that God was there, that in fact he had always been there, and that he loved me. God came in and changed me. In fact, I've been turning into an entirely different person ever since. The dead ground drinking up the water and changing into green, vibrant life. I mean, she's describing these verses we've just studied. She's living in the presence of God for the first time ever. He is appearing to her. She is pursuing and pressing on to know him for the first time. And she is basking in the waters, the rain of his love, satisfying and transforming her for the first time. And friends, the fun thing is that was the beginning of living this out. And Joy Davidman married Lewis, and they had a short but beautiful marriage. More importantly, love with God. He, knowing him, changed everything for Joy Davidman changed everything for those Israelites who followed Hosea's words. And it will change everything for you. My prayer is that these words in Hosea 6, 1 through 3, will not be just, oh, how beautiful, how poetic. Let me circle and underline them. No, they want, they need to be your life, a description of what you pursue, of what you experience. In fact, let me pray for you towards that end right now. God, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for this vision you have that they might know you. All those at Bolingbrook, those at 95th, Wheaton, Hobson. God, I pray that even this week, as surely as the sun rises, you would appear to them. I pray you'd surprise them with a sudden awareness of your nearness. That they this week might bask in the rain of your love. I pray that they'd have this hunger to pursue you, to press on, to know you. Please, God, give them the fire to take steps every day in pursuit of knowing you. And God, I pray you would satisfy their soul and change their life through knowing their God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.